Please turn your Bibles to Mark 10, verses 1 to 13. Oh, sorry. Mark 10, verses 13 to 16. Mark chapter 10, verses 13 to 16. We looked at last week in verses 1 to 12, the issue of marriage and divorce and how Jesus sought or taught, really, um, that the followers of Jesus really should look towards honoring God the utmost way, seeking to do that which is maximal and not minimal. And so today, he continues on his practical teachings. Uh, Next week, we'll look at the young, rich, famous, young, rich ruler story. Uh, But he's teaching really about marriage, children, and then finance, right? So these three areas are quite practical areas, areas that the Lord Jesus, of course, teaches and uh, preaches on in the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, perhaps this is Mark's sort of mini rendition of those teachings. Today we find um, a very important uh, episode, uh, short and brief in its reading, but powerful in its teaching. Mark 10, verses 13 to 16. I'll read from my Bible, and you can follow along in yours. This is the Word of God. And they were bringing children to him so that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And he took them in his arms and began blessing them, laying his hands on them. Amen. One of my favorite preachers of all time is John Stott. It's a good old English Anglican preacher. Uh, His sermons are quite prolific, especially the ones he preached at uh, Urbana. Those are the ones that really stood out to me. This is before Urbana went a little bit wonky, uh, but when it was quite heavily missional. Uh, Stott used to preach sermons there, and uh, there's one particular sermon at Urbana. You can find it probably on YouTube. It's probably my all-time favorite sermon to listen to. Uh, That one and the seashells one by Piper, right? That's always a good good old sermon to go back to. Uh, but I remember reading Stott's biography and uh, his book on preaching. And in this book, he, uh, in his book, is, uh, his book on, on, the, on how to preach, uh, he shares this prayer. That, this is a very short, simple prayer that he prays right before he preaches. And uh, I'd like to share this prayer, and I'd like to pray this prayer with you before we begin today. It's very short, so let's qu- quickly bow our heads and close our eyes. Heavenly Father, we bow in your presence. May your word be our rule your spirit our teacher, and your greater glory our supreme concern. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, in his name we pray. Amen. Our sermon is entitled, Let the Children Come. Of course, it's the words of our Lord Jesus straight from the text today. I remember when I was nine years old, uh, my younger brother was born. Um, Interestingly enough, my wife was also born when I was nine. He was (laughs) late. He was a late one. Um, my brother was a late one, um, and he joined our family with much blessing and anticipation. Uh, you can imagine, right? I mean, nine years with just me in the house. I mean, you can imagine just how uh, energetic and enthusiastic my parents were to have, uh, prob- well, what they were likely hoping for, a better son. Um, but like anything in life, when something or someone, uh, in this case, I suppose, is new, There's a sheen to the newness. There's a glamour to it. It's exciting to participate in new things. 
very much because we quickly get dull of the old. I remember being in campus ministry. We used to make every single year, if not every semester, we try to make it new because uh, the kids, or not kids, the students would just get dull of it. Like, oh, it's just routine. It's mundane. It's the same thing over and over again. So we'd always like try to come up with creative ways of doing newer and better and greater things, right? That was sort of uh, the obstacle of ministry at times, with some of the practical issues. And it's exciting to participate in new things because we get dull of the old. Some have said that we live in an era where we grow old of things way too quickly. One of my favorite podcasters, his name is Bill Simmons. He's just a sports podcaster. I listen to him quite often. But he refers to this generation as one that is on ADD with steroids. So if you're, if you're like following basketball, they introduced this like in-season tournament right now. And it's just like, like they're just stealing it from European soccer. They've been doing it forever. But it's just a way of getting fans interested, commoner, like people to just get more and more interested because people are tired of the same thing repeating over and over and over again. Nothing entices us for very long. We're like super excited for the new thing, right? I remember when like Usain Bolt like broke the record like, like, my, like way faster than anyone had ever run 100, 100 uh, meters. And then it was just like, ah, eh, yeah, yeah, he did it again, right? Nothing entices us for very long. So here comes my brother, nine years into my life. And once that newness of this brother rubbed off, uh, and even I was excited to have this child at home and call him my brother. I always wanted a sibling. But that newness quickly rubbed off. And he became very quickly a thorn to my side. I remember one night he totally ripped up my stamp collection. Yes, I was a nerd with a stamp collection. And I was irate. I was irate. I started packing my things up and told my mom I'm leaving home for good. You should never see me again. And um, once sense kicked in, I began to unpack my bag, um, quickly realizing I don't have money or food or anywhere to go. The issue was annoyance. The, anno- the issue was annoyance with this kid, this thing called my brother. His immaturity, his lack of self-control, his greediness, his, his non-consideration of others, no sensibility, total nuisance-like behavior. He was less than human in my eyes for a season, and in some ways, children are exactly that to the Jews at this time that we read this text, lesser than adults, lesser than human. When we see the disciples rebuking the children today, they are doing so because the culture of the, of the time viewed and saw children in this way. They saw children as lesser humans, not fully human yet, They were lower-class citizens because of their age and their immaturity. They had no business being with the adults in their recreations and matters of serious nature, especially when Jesus is teaching. So when the children are brought to Jesus with good intent, likely by their parents, uh, to receive a blessing from this prolific rabbi, they're sent back by the disciples in rebuke. And the term rebuke here in the Greek is used in cases of typically in Mark's gospel, of casting demons out and evil spirits. Where here the disciples cast off the children as if they were equal to the evil spirits that they had encountered. Now the irony, of course, is that they had failed to cast off real demons back in chapter 9. And it is this rebuke by the disciples that sets up our narrative today. More importantly, the teaching of the narrative, for again, as Jesus and disciples are headed down to Jerusalem, Jesus teaches yet again what it means to be a true disciple, a follower of him, by using the example of this low-class citizen, this lesser human 
a child, children. Jesus again teaches a reverse kingdom theology. Just as the true disciple is one who carries his cross, serves all, is last of all, and is one who seeks to do the most honorable thing for God, he too is one who is like a child in their receiving of the kingdom. Now for the Jew, there would be nothing in a child that they would want to mimic. And here is Christ saying, like a child, receive the kingdom. Let's take a look at what Jesus means by these words. There's two simple points to today's sermon. Likeness to the children, blessing of the children. Likeness to the children, blessing of the children. Let's look at the first point, likeness to the children. In these verses, we see two things. And if you look at your Bibles, you can follow along very simply. And in these verses, we see two things mentioned in regards to children and the kingdom of God. The first is that the kingdom belongs to the children. And the second is that only those who receive the kingdom like a child may enter into it. Now, the sayings may appear confusing or perhaps perplexing to some of you, but in reality, the teaching is quite simple. It's not meant to be overly complex. Not to say that this teaching would have uh, really not have been provocative to a crowd that had grown accustomed to see to seeing and viewing children in a certain way. But the ministry of Christ has been thus far in Mark's gospel, at least, it's really been about redefining and reshaping the very systems and beliefs of the religious order, namely their understanding of Christ, the Messiah, and those who follow him, the followers of Christ. So it should be of no shock to us here that Jesus is calling for the children to come to him, the very people who are being told to go away. Jesus has them come to him, just as he would have any of us come to him. Those unworthy, those undeserving, the least of all, brought to the greatest of all. The rebuke of the disciples unto the children is almost turned onto them. It's almost like a, it's like a counter-rebuke, right? There's two points I'd like to draw out out of this particular likeness to the children. The reason um, that Jesus says, firstly, that the kingdom belongs to the children. Let's focus on that phrasing. What does this mean, that the kingdom belongs to the children? Now, we shouldn't be too lost by these words, considering texts like the Beatitudes, if you're familiar with the Beatitudes and Matthew 5, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, in which kingdom theology is flipped completely upside down in that sermon for all of the hearers of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed, Jesus taught in Matthew 5, are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the gentle, those who hunger, those who thirst, those who are merciful, those pure in heart, the peacemakers, the persecuted. Now, some of these things are pretty obvious, pure in heart, peacemaker, merciful, those are good things, but hunger, thirst, poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are persecuted, these are the people who are blessed to the kingdom of God? Not exactly the valiant and great men that the disciples falsely saw themselves as, right? Who amongst, is, who amongst us is the greatest? This is the dispute of the disciples who are blind. Qualities, of course, that stood, at least in the Beatitudes, are, the things that are mentioned there are qualities that stood in contrast to the popular opinion of who ought to be and who were, in fact, blessed by God. The Pharisees would say, 
Well, no. It's the obedient. It's the consistent. It's those who know. And here again, the children are the ones to whom the kingdom belongs, Jesus says. Perhaps the qualities of the Beatitudes are best encapsulated by, in fact, the qualities of a faithful child. More so than the so-called mature men and women of Israel. What does, this, what does Jesus mean then? That the kingdom belongs to the children. He means that it is not who men think ought to be in the kingdom who end up there, but rather whoever Jesus would have come to him. Children may seem contrary to the disciples as ones to whom the kingdom belongs, but it is by Jesus' call that anyone is there at all. And so it is the lowly who realize the voice of their shepherd that are entered into the fold of God. Right? So sometimes we can be harsh in our judgment of one another. It's not to say we shouldn't judge one another. We should judge one another in good faith and practice to sharpen one another. But at times we think this certain type, this certain group of people could never be there. And it is our human standard and perspective that needs to be humbled by passages like this. That Christ's call is available to all. The second statement in verse 15 expands on the first to further its teaching. The disciples and the listeners are taught that the kingdom must be received like a child in order to enter it. Now, some people read this and think that it means that Jesus would want us to be like a child in quality. I remember Sunday school lessons like this, right? They would be like, see, Jesus loves children. He has the children come to him, and you have to be like a child to enter the kingdom of God, right? I don't think their teaching was necessarily malicious, but I don't think they exegeted this text properly. Perhaps it's my thought. I'll share my thought, and you can agree or disagree with me but I don't suppose that that's what this text means. To be innocent, to be naive, to be carefree. Sometimes that's what we teach in sermons like these. To, to take on the quality or character of a child, to be childlike in our faith, to some, and maybe some of you in this room, means that we ought to behave like a child, to be almost childish. But that is not the thrust of the text and I can't, I can't imagine why God would want us to be childish, especially with texts like 1 Corinthians 2 and 3, where Paul calls for the maturation of the believer to not be like a child, but to be readied, matured, to eat solid food, to grow in understanding and faith in the Lord and practice of the faith in one's life and obedience to him. It's a sign of maturity. But there's an element of childlikeness that Christ is speaking to in the receiving of the kingdom. So what does this mean? So if that's not the thrust, thrust of the text, then what is it? The idea is to be like a child in dependency, at least in recognition of one's dependency. In fact, we should really articulate it as be like a child in its total dependency on its father. To be like a child in their need for help because they are helpless their need for guidance because they have no idea where they're going and their need for care because they cannot take care of themselves. 
Perhaps that's why we're equated to sheep. Sheep are no different in this sense. If Jesus were teaching that we ought to be like child, to be childlike in quality to enter the kingdom, well then first of all, I would definitely be in the kingdom because I am very childlike in a lot of things that I do. But then the entrance into the kingdom would no longer depend on Christ having us there. But what would it be based on? Your own merit. It would be based on you, your performance. But see what Christ says. He says to receive the kingdom. Receive that which is given by God and enter into it as a prize as you receive it as one like a child who can do nothing else for himself. A child who could do nothing to save themselves and have no merit to enter into it. Be like a child in knowing this, that you are recipients of something you did not earn and you do not deserve. Be like a child. This means to know that we willingly follow and respond to the voice that calls us, the voice that would have us and declare us as his own. And in the doctrine of adoption, we learn that he would call us, by his grace and mercy, he would call us son. He would call us daughter. Be like a child in this way. Right? Very few children, you know, do you ever need to sit them down? I imagine Hyunny and Esther are very close to this particular period in their life. And I imagine this, that when their child is born into this world and they come of age and they are able to communicate to some degree, I rarely think, and I don't know if any of you had to experience this, I really don't think Hyunny and Esther are going to have to sit down their child and go, I am your dad. You, we share blood. <laughs> like, this is your mom. We're all related. You're here because you came from us. Like you're, you're here because of us. Like you're related to us in an intimate way, in a physical, in, 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 a, in a way that is most evident. My parents had never had to break that down for me. Well, I'm, not a, I'm not adopted into the family in the sense that we're, you know, some children are. Children get a sense and understanding immediately, knowing this is my guardian. This is my protector. This is my parent. Perhaps why some of the first words out of our mouths are father, dad, mother, mom. Because we know intuitively. And as the Lord would have us as his own, as he calls us into the family of God to declare us his son and daughter, that recognition is made known to us. This is our Father, our God, who would have us as so. It's a most powerful thing. It's a most powerful thing to receive the kingdom in this way. James Edwards writes, to receive the kingdom of God as a child is to receive it as one who has no credit, no clout, no claim. So the blessing of the children. The reason the children were initially brought to Jesus, if you read the text in verse 13, was to receive blessing from Jesus. A classic practice at the time of the Jewish people and also seen in the Old Testament in passages that, of course, depict the fathers, or depict many fathers who would uh, pass on blessing, the household blessing to their sons, by placing their hands on their heads, laying of hands, and blessing them. 
We see this with Isaac and his blessing of Jacob, who stole his brother's blessing, or with Joseph, who reverse hands, right? And, you know, he changes his right and left hand, and he blesses Ephraim and Manasseh. Jesus, being a revered and prolific teacher at the time in the eyes of the Jewish public crowd, would have garnered the hopes of parents, Jewish parents, who would want such an incredible blessing from an incredible rabbi for their children. Bless my child, they would have wanted. What they sought was good, but the disciples did not want the children there for even such a reason. Jesus saw opportunity in the midst of this particular episode to teach the twelve and ultimately us, the church, but also to extend to the children the very blessing their parents sought. Verse 16 tells us that Jesus took the children in his arms and he blessed them by laying his hands on them. We see this act of blessing in the priestly ordinations of the Old Testament that confers office and bestows wisdom. We also see this in Acts with the apostles as they commissioned and ordained new ministers of the word. Old Testament practice saw the laying on of hands as a means by which a father would pass on name and property to their children. Here, God the Father, through God the Son, blesses these children to pass on grace to them, whether it's saving or not is debated, that they would one day be found in the arms of Christ in eternal glory. The nature of the blessing we can debate, but what we can't bless is the event of it. It is a glorious image we see in this last verse of the reality of every Christian life, that it is one that has been received by Christ to be in Christ by the hand of Christ. Blessed by God to be with him. And what more? But a Savior that does not distance himself from the lowly, but rather has his very hands on top of the heads of those he calls. Just as he would touch the eyes of the blind, just as he would offer a hand to Peter as he's drowning in the water, he touches us in a very real way. A touch of Christ that means much more than physical contact, for it was the contact that the Jewish leaders despised with the lowly and the unclean. And it is contact that Christ offers to those that would respond to his call by faith. A touch not offered and one that cannot be offered by any other into salvation. To this Christ, brothers and sisters, on this day, may your eyes be lifted and may your sights rest and be blessed by him today. As the famous hymn goes, perfect submission, all is at rest. I and my Savior and happy and blessed, watching and waiting, looking above, filled with his goodness, lost in his love. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. We're reminded in these verses today that apart from Christ, there is no entry into the kingdom. That it is Christ alone who is our mediator, the one who reconciles us to God. He alone has the means to save us, the sinner. He alone calls us to be his own, to be his children. We are reminded of the gospel truth that Christ saves. It is not by merit or credit, but by Christ alone. And it is faith alone in this Christ that he came to die for us, that he rose from the dead and that he will come again. That is the basis of our belief in salvation. We are effectually called to him, to his arms, in which those who believe will be found, his children. We are to receive this good news 
like a child. Those of you who are believers ought to be assured and encouraged by this good news. And those of you who are sitting here today who do not yet believe or yet are in contemplation over your assurance or over the claims of the, of the Christian faith, may you be blessed too. Blessed in knowing this truth, having this communicated to you, and having opportunity to consider and respond by faith. What Christ asks of us is nothing more than to trust in him because our sin can do nothing for us but lead us to death. And so I urge you to look instead to the one who conquered the power of sin, to Jesus Christ, and to be blessed this day by him. We pray for you. Let's bow our heads in prayer as we reflect and consider what we've taught or what we've, lear what we've learned um, through what God has taught us today. Let's pray.